My cooking is uh, famous in our family, but not, unfortunately, for the reasons that I wish it was. Um, the children have grown up um, recounting many a tale of a culinary disaster. For instance, uh, probably one of the most iconic is the famous halibut snow. Um, you'll have to ask uh, Johnny um, about that if you want it. Or, or another, another one, which at the time I was quite proud of, but um, I've seen uh, the light since then. Um, it was an attempt to reuse some uh, um, Christmas pudding and I made it into a really interesting um, pie with uh, Christmas pudding and um, some apple and, um, and, and it was a disaster. Um, <laughs> but slowly, slowly I have learned. Slowly... I've understood what ingredients go with what, how things, how food works so that you can produce something palatable, something nourishing, something that the whole of the family enjoys. And in one sense, getting to know the Bible is a bit like that. Frankly, um, when we are new to it sometimes, we can't make head and a tail of it. We, it's just confusing how it fits together. There is, in, in many ways, no shortcut to getting a rich and deep and satisfying and nourishing understanding of the Bible. But one of the, the central things that we do as a church in all sorts of ways, but not least when we gather together on a, on a Sunday, is we try to help people to get the recipe right so they won't have quite as many disasters as I've had in my cooking. And uh, so although often, most of the time, to be honest, we are focusing on just one passage and trying to see what that has to say to us, sometimes, um, like at the, at the moment, we, we step back for a little bit and we try and get a flavour of how the whole Bible fits together. What the recipe is, really, from beginning to end, of what God's message is to us. And that's what we've been doing. There are, it, because um, the Bible is a sort of rich network of truth, there are lots of ways that you could, you could approach it. But there is... A story that runs through the Bible. We've been pursuing that story, particularly looking at how it relates to the church. What the Bible has to say, and the whole Bible has a lot to say, about the church, the local church, the people that we are here. That's the story we've been looking at. And uh, just to remind you, uh, if you uh, haven't been here for the last few weeks, we... We had a week off last week. Um, we have been saying the church, this gathering of ordinary Christians, is a community on, on the brink of eternity. One day God will recreate his whole universe and populate it with his people where, and there will be no evil at all, no sin, no dying, no, 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 nothing bad at all in the, in the whole of that new creation. And imperfectly, and uh, um, very imperfectly, this community is a little anticipation of that as we start in stumbling ways 
to live in the way God has called us to do, to live in the way God will enable us to do if we are believers in eternity. We are a community on the brink of eternity. But we said there's a, a much bigger backstory to, uh, uh, to that that we need to understand, to, to understand God's purposes for the church. We started off with uh, the story of the Garden of Eden, how God created people good and in harmony with one another, with the world, with God, but that the first human beings, Adam and Eve, sinned and from then everything went wrong. But God set out, we said, to, to restore human beings, restore the image of God in man. And we saw in our first study the place where he does that supremely is here in community in the local church. We saw as well that uh, the story doesn't jump straight to the church. It first of all goes to this man Abraham. Abraham was given a whole series of promises focusing initially on his descendants and on the land. But we saw that actually, the way the New Testament fulfills it is in some ways a slight surprise. And the New Testament says that here in the church is the beginnings of a fulfilment of the promises to Abraham. Not now building a physical nation in a certain place but building, a, building local manifestations of the people of God throughout the world. You are a holy nation. You are a chosen people to declare God's praises, says, uh, uh, says the New Testament. The promises to Abraham are being fulfilled in the life of the church before they are finally fully fulfilled in God's new creation. But the story uh, um, had another um, stage in it. We saw two weeks ago that uh, the Bible introduces the concept of the law and one of the great purposes of the law is to, is to give us a big warning. There is going to be no fulfilment of those promises to Abraham if God's people are disobedient. That sets up a, a massive problem in the Bible. A problem that initially is only solved by Jesus dying on the cross for our sins so that Jesus pays the penalty for everything that we do wrong so that the promises to Abraham can be fulfilled. And now we live as people who are committed to obedience still, we saw two weeks ago but also have the glorious truth alongside that, that we are forgiven through Jesus Christ. And the rest of the Old Testament is, is long and complex, as you'll know if you've uh, tried to read it, but it basically says just one thing. The warning that the law gave about the the, the, the almost impossibility of the fulfilment of the promises to Abraham came true. There were good moments, such as under, under the reign of the, uh, King David um, in the Old Testament, but, but basically 
it was always only heading for disaster. And finally, God's people, the nation of Israel, the physical descendants of Abraham, because of their sin, found themselves not in the promised land at all, but scattered, most of them disappeared completely, and those who remained um, exiled in a foreign land. And everything seemed to be in tatters. It was at that moment in the Old Testament story that the great prophets started to prophesy. And uh, they said something really, really important. And Isaiah is the sort of central one of those, um, that, those prophets. They said something very, very important. They said, God's promises are not going to be stopped. They looked forward to Jesus. What the law had already told us we needed Jesus' death on the cross. But they looked forward also, and this is our emphasis uh, for this series, they looked forward also, both actually to you, us, and to that new creation. They said, actually, God is going to do something wonderful. He is going to create a new community of God's people. It's going to be the church. And he is going to fully complete his commitment to create a community of God's people from every tribe and nation in a land, this time the whole world, now thoroughly made new in the new creation. That's, that's what the prophets as a whole say. And we're going to spend just a couple of minutes looking slightly more at um, uh, the prophecy of Isaiah before actually we see how the New Testament does build on all of this story that I've been telling you. I've not been manufacturing it out of, uh, out of thin air. It builds on this story to make deeply practical applications to the life of local churches. That's where we're going to go. But let's just look at Isaiah for a little bit to get a little bit more um, uh, information into our heads about this message of Isaiah. You could divide the message of Isaiah into three great sections. Since it's 66 chapters, I'm not going to read um, the the whole thing, nor... um, uh, am I going to focus on you um, uh, flicking lots of pages through to, uh, to try to understand it? Let, let, let's, just, uh, let's just try to, to get the big picture into our minds, which will inform your reading, I hope. Isaiah says God's going to create his new community in, in, a, in a certain way. He says, first of all, that God is going to send a king in the first 39 chapters of that prophecy. A great king who will, who will lead God's new community. For instance, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. Um, in that day, this future day that Isaiah is looking forward to, in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. And his place of rest will be glorious. It's sort of lots of Old Testament code uh, words there. The root of Jesse 
um, indicates that this person would be a king because Jesse was King David's father. So what, what Isaiah means is that Jesus, uh, uh, because he's looking forward to Jesus, Jesus will be of royal blood. He will be a king. He will be from the, 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 the family of Jesse, the royal line. And this king, Jesus, will draw, notice, people from all nations together to his glorious place of rest. He's going to rally them like a great commander, bring them together. A king, then, will lead God's new community, says Isaiah 1 to 39. Then Isaiah 40 to 55 says uh, says a second thing a suffering servant will die for the sins of this new community of god that great problem that we've already seen you see in the law and we said is solved by jesus well isaiah saw that He foresaw Jesus as a wonderful suffering servant who would die for the sins of uh, God's new community. All people from all the nations. For instance, Isaiah 52. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, he wasn't going to be impressive. In fact, a lot of people were going to be horrified by what happened to him. So his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man that his form marred beyond human likeness But verse 15, so he will sprinkle many nations. That language of sprinkling is about, um, uh, uh, comes from the the world of Old Testament sacrifice, where they would sacrifice an animal and sprinkle the blood on, uh, sometimes on the altar of God, sometimes on the people, to indicate that that sacrifice had paid for their sins. That was only a picture, says Isaiah. What we're looking forward to is a human being who will die for the sins of those many nations. Jesus. So uh, that, that second great section of Isaiah re- um, revolves around this suffering servant who's going to solve the great Old Testament problem How can the promises to Abraham be fulfilled? And then the the third section, uh, Isaiah 56 to 66, a proclaimer, a prophetic figure, someone who speaks out on God's behalf will come and will proclaim the gospel, the good news to God's new community. That too is Jesus. Look at Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, he says, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news, to preach the gospel to the poor. And then just a few verses on, the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. See how that comes up? That's come up again and again and again in these different sections of Isaiah. The king is going to lead people from all nations. The suffering servant is going to die for people from 
all nations. This proclaimer of good news is going to proclaim the gospel to all nations. The big vision of Isaiah is that people from all over the world are going to be drawn together by Jesus. King, suffering servant, proclaimer of the gospel. All over the world. And it's going to be manifested in local churches. That's what uh, Paul is getting at when he finishes part of his uh, great argument in his letter to the Romans. So we're there at Romans 15. We're going to see how these great truths land, how they, how they become focused um, on practical issues in the life of local churches in the New Testament. Romans 15 is one such example. Paul has been arguing in Romans chapter 14 and uh, earlier as well that the church in Rome, local churches actually in Rome, should be places that welcome all kinds of people. Specifically their problem was Jews and Gentiles. So you see that language coming up a lot in this chapter. Jews and non-Jews. There were believers of both, from both backgrounds in Rome and they were finding it very difficult to coexist. And Paul says you cannot give up on this. You cannot just go off and, and form separate churches, a Jewish church and a Gentile church. You must not do it. You must learn to live together. That doesn't mean that they will all be exactly the same or that they will all immediately agree on everything. He speaks of some people who have what he calls weak consciences and other people who are strong. In fact, he identifies himself with the strong in verse, chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. People, people, there, there, there will always be people like that in the church. All sorts of, of, of divisions of various, uh, various kinds. But he says, you must learn to live together. We must accept one another. He says um, in verse uh, uh, 7, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. And he justifies it first. We're not going to dwell on it, but we must notice it. He justifies it first because it, the, the Jesus is our great example. Verse 3, for instance, in this section, Even Christ did not please himself, as it is written, The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Or verse 8, for I tell you, Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God 
for his mercy. We need to just unpack those couple of verses just for a couple of minutes to see what he's, what he's talking about. He's saying, first of all, Christ was a Jew and he served his life amongst the Jews. That's undeniable. But his vision and his focus was, um, verse um, uh, uh, 8, sorry, verse 9, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. His vision and his purpose, says the Apostle, was always actually to form churches that have all kinds of people in them. He sent out his disciples after he was risen from the dead for exactly that purpose. The churches must gather all kinds of people, he says, because that was what Jesus was intending to do. But now, because we're trying to do big picture stuff as well, now notice also the other aspect of what he's saying. Jesus did it to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. In other words, Jesus had that biblical story in his mind. And it's what, what, what drove him to live and die the way that he did. The promises to the patriarchs, that's uh, uh, Abraham and his descendants, those promises made all that time ago were, were vital to Jesus. And so he set out to confirm them through his life. And then, what we want to dwell on, I want to dwell on a little more to try to to get the recipe, the biblical recipe for how the Bible fits together into your mind. Paul says, actually, this message of bringing all kinds of people together in local churches, this message is rooted in the whole Bible. Verses 9 to 11, the the footnotes in the NIV will show you what... um, the Apostle Paul is doing. First of all, he quotes from 2 Samuel 22, one of the history books of the Old Testament, about the, I will praise you among the Gentiles, he says, amongst all the nations. Secondly, he quotes from Deuteronomy. We've already seen that. The law had as part of its intention that all nations would gather together into one community. Then he, then he quotes from a psalm. Then he quotes from Isaiah the prophet, who we've been uh, uh, looking at briefly. Indeed, he's the sort of great central prophet of the Old Testament. He quotes, in fact, the passage that we use, the root of Jesse will spring up one who will arise to rule over you. He's chosen every major section of the Old Testament writers and he's saying, if you understand the Bible as a whole, you will see how vital it is that local churches, that your local church accepts and bears with one another. It is the heartbeat of the whole Bible. 
That's why we have in our church vision statements that we are committed to reach the peoples of East Oxford and the world. Why we are committed to care for and disciple all kinds of people. It is our heartbeat. It is what it means to be a biblical Christian. Over the last uh, 30 years or so, it's been very popular to encourage churches to, to focus on perhaps one subset of uh, a, a local community, whether, that, that, whether that's forming black churches or churches for young singles or churches for families or whatever. And let me tell you, in one sense, that works. That really does. You can grow a church if you focus on one narrow demographic in, in a local area. I've always felt instinctively uncomfortable about this because of this, 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 this big um, theme in the whole of Scripture. I noticed as well that the New Testament writers work massively hard to hold diverse churches together. If you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, he devoted more time trying to hold churches together and Christians together of different backgrounds than almost anything else. I don't know how he got time to share the gospel with outsiders. I felt uncomfortable about that, but then in 1994 there was the Rwandan genocide. 800,000 people were massacred in just a hundred days and one of the most shocking elements of that horrible atrocity was that professing Christians were amongst the murderers. And understandably, numbers of Christian leaders started asking the question, what was going on? That regular church attenders could take up machetes and kill others. One of the answers they came up with, one of the principal answers, it's quite shocking, decades before, Church leaders in many different traditions in Rwanda had concluded it was impossible to have churches for Hutus and Tutsis, the two major tribal groups. And they had accepted there would be Hutu churches and there would be Tutsi churches. And when the crisis happened, vast numbers of those church attenders had a tribal identity before they had a Christian identity. So you can grow churches numerically. In fact, it's easier to grow churches numerically if they are demographically narrow. But you cannot go grow Christians in that environment. It is of the essence of growing in Christian maturity that we learn to accept one another, to bear with one another, across all sorts of divides. Because that is where we hone our Christian identity. That is where we learn to grow, loving all kinds of people, brothers and sisters for whom Christ died.
You know, I'm, I'm a, I have a certain identity. I, I can't deny that. I don't think the Bible asks me to deny that. I am a white Devon farmer's son and educated at Cambridge University. Each of those have, uh, have shaped me. But first of all, I am a child of the living God. And first of all, that is what you are too, if you're a believer here this morning. You know, I, I, I am prepared to love you if you think that uh, farms are dirty, stinking, miserable places, but actually they are the closest thing to paradise on, on this earth, you know. A friend of mine calls me, uh, some of you might know, he's a, he's a sort of bit of a city slicker and um, he wrote a book not so long ago and um, described me as a hobbit in it. I still love him. And all of those other divisions that we have, they're real. God is not creating clones here. He's creating diversity that learns to love one another. That is how believers grow. That is one of the big themes in Scripture. That's what Paul says. History, law, psalms, prophets, they all testify to God's intention to bring diverse people together into local churches. And the second thing I want to bring out for that, just for a couple of minutes, It is actually through absorbing this message, through learning to to cook with Scripture, shall we say, that we ourselves grow. Look at at how Paul describes that in um, uh, this passage. Look at verse 4, for instance, of Romans 15. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Everything that was written in the past, not just our little favourite selection of nice syrupy sayings that make us feel good. My duty, the Bible says, is to teach you the whole counsel of God. Our duty together is to learn the whole counsel of God. I know we have different capacities, but every one of us is called to read and learn and understand Scripture. You know, in cultures where hardly anyone reads, the converts learn, the Christian converts learn to read, always. Because they know their life um, rests on it. We had, uh, we had someone uh, in the church a number of years ago who, who could hardly read when he was converted. Two years later, he was a fluent reader because he knew this is his food. He needed to get up and learn to read and he did. And it, you know this is a this is a this is a, a culture in Oxford divided between the, the, the sort of 
ultra-educated and the, and, the, and the less educated to a certain extent. I'm not talking about levels of education. Every single one of us has a duty to understand Scripture as best we can with the level of, of, of intellectual ability that we have. One of the godliest and most biblically literate people in this church in, in days gone by was a man who was just a college servant in, a, in, a, in, a, in one of the local colleges and had almost a, a very, very little formal education. And yet he knew his Bible better than I did. I want you to have an appetite to read the Bible. To understand the Bible. To, to, to fit it together. Everything that is written is for you. And look what it will do in your life. It was written so that the scriptures would give you endurance to start with. The Bible says it's not particularly significant how you start out your Christian life, yeah? You can go for a few years and look quite impressive in the first few years. The Bible says it's really significant how you complete your Christian life. And that requires endurance. Specifically, the Apostle's talking about endurance in terms of, of maintaining loving relationships, Christian discipleship within the local church. But more, more than that, you know, I, I've been serving the Lord for, 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 I've been a Christian for 30 years now. There have been, there have been so many times that I've been knocked down. And it's the scriptures that have picked me up again. It's that nourishment that comes from going back to the Bible and hearing the living God speaking to me. You want to be a firm, solid Christian who will be fruitful over long term throughout the whole of your life? Read the Bible, says the Apostle Paul. Encouragement as well. We get despondent. We get downhearted. We, uh, things don't work out as we hope we would. We, we are tempted to despair. And again and again, as you come back to the Bible, as you understand it, as you seek to absorb it, you will find encouragement. And uh, lastly, Paul says you will find hope there. See that in verse uh, 4 as well. Through the endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Hope that began way back there in the Garden of Eden. God's not going to leave Adam and Eve in their, in their troubled state. He's going to do something about it. Hope that found focus in Abraham. God makes promises to him and he's not going to withdraw those promises. Hope that found new focus in the prophets. God will not only recreate a people for himself, he will create a new heavens and a new earth for them. The whole message of the scripture says, you, believer, have enormous reason to be hopeful. You are a people on the brink of eternity. You are people safe in the sovereign hand of God. You may have disappointments, but God saw them before. He'll keep you. You may be aware of, your, of the depth of your sin and terribly worried, 
that it could completely capsize you. But God saw it before and he will keep you, believer. You may feel that all your plans for your life are dashed or just not coming true. But God saw it before. He had a plan to conform you to the likeness of Christ and that work which he began, he will carry on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Or as Paul says it here, verse 12, the root of Jesse will spring up from Isaiah 1 who will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him And then may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Spirit. God the Father, the Holy Spirit working together to give you joy and peace as you rest in the hope of the things that God has promised. My great passion and concern for each one of you is that you should be people who are so rooted in the truths of the Bible, so secure in them, that there is nothing will stop you enduring, nothing that will take you away from the encouragement that God gives you, nothing that will dent your hope. Because that kind of person is not only the most complete person, person who has that, that joy and peace that Paul describes, but he's also the most fruitful person Slowly over the years, I've learned to cook in ways that, um, at least most of the time, meet the family's approval. I've learned how things fit together to give real nourishment. I want you to learn how this great story of God fits together so that you will be nourished for all of your life.